Nam Lee was born in Vietnam and raised in Australia. He has received the Pushcart Prize, the Michener Copernicus Society of America Award and fellowships from the Iowa Writers Workshop, the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, and Phillips Exeter Academy. Currently the fiction editor of the Harvard Review, he has published work in Zoetrope, All Story, a public space conjunctions, one story in the best American non-required reading 2007. He divides his time between Australia and the United States. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you for having me. I'd like to deconstruct the short story with you. What do you think about that? I think uh, it's ambitious and possibly disastrous, but let's uh, (laughs) see where we end up. You think we might sink the boat? (laughs) The boat being, of course, your latest book of short stories. One of the great things about having that as the title is it's uh, an invitation for metaphor galore. Was it Rimbo? Rambo. Yeah, Rimbo no, did a... The Drunken Boat. Drunk, yeah. That's right. Obviously there's Das Boot as well. It's pretty early for us to get or be drunk, so... Right. It's, uh, it's 5pm somewhere, I'm sure. Let's start with Flannery O'Connor. Her thoughts on what makes for uh, for a good short story. She starts off by suggesting that, that emphasis should be pl- uh, placed upon the senses. What do you do with the senses? Anything? You know, I don't think that's something that is any more applicable to the short story than to fiction in general, or you know, or any any writing in general. I guess there is a sense sometimes that you know there are so many ways of demarcating the technical aspects of fiction, and I think they can be instructive in certain ways, but when you turn your mind to reverse engineering what it is that works about a story, it very rarely falls neatly into the categories you'd like them to. So one sort of demarcation would be the sensory world, the world of palpable, tangible, material, and very you know, humanly relatable realistic stimuli and phenomena. Exactly. Yeah. So it's realistic in that sense. And of course the, uh, the other side of that particular you know, line would be the more abstract or cerebral or intellectual world of ideas. Or zany or crazy or... Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. But things which aren't necessarily apprehensible by the senses. To me, I, I think you'd be foolish not to incorporate as much sensual and sensuous material uh, into your work as possible. I mean... Just because it makes it easier for the re- reader to get immersed in what you're trying to communicate? I think because if you operate on the predicate that writing is a form of communication and that one of the goals of of fiction, of writing, is to draw on what is common and universal about our our experience, then how how much more common can you get than the physical body, you know, in which we're forced to operate? That's where everything comes from. That's where everything comes from and all of us mediate um, all of our experiences and ideas through our senses. Mm -hmm. And so... Not only can you create a much more vivid mimesis for the reader if you describe you know, the light and the smell and the sound and the tactility of something, you can also use that as a springboard to actually engage perhaps the more abstract ideas that you want your fiction to do. So how would you do that? By, by doing exactly that, by trying to create as, as concrete and vivid and sustainable a dream as possible to really uh, immerse the reader in a sense that they're moving inside that dream and that they can see what this 
encrypted cage of words signifies. And I think that's, that's, the, uh, that's the beauty of what we do. How do you make a dream different from reality if you're trying to you know, make these senses as vivid as possible? What do you do? The sort of the immediate response of walking down this path leads very quickly to what you might call abject naturalism, where you know, I walk into this room and I have to describe the, you know, the light from all angles and the, you know, how the carpet looks and feels. And of course that just bogs you down, you know, obviously, in, in, in a mire of what you think of as, as being very similitude. That's not how we engage with the world. No, you know. It's we, very selective. Isn't it? we, we, we discriminate all the time. We, we each do it in our own unique way. We each do it in our own way. Yeah. And we, we do it even as we engage with the world because there are so many functions of our brains yeah. that work without our conscious or, or intentional thought, obviously. Otherwise, you know, you wouldn't, we, we wouldn't be able to function. And in fiction, in writing, that discrimination is brought to a very, very, very high level. It's, it's extraordinarily important because not only that, you're dealing with, as we were saying, you're dealing with encrypted signifiers and reference. And so... You can't actually transpose your experience or your discrimination onto someone else. And so basically what you're doing is you're trying to throw up nodes of significance. You're trying to throw up charged phenomena, such as, you know, the way the light might fall on someone's face. But you need to do that in a way that's not cliched because then it sucks the novelty or the immediacy out of it. Yeah, I think what you might want to do too is, is uh, is what Chekhov did, which is notice things that are sort of really odd but there's like one example that stays with me and that is a man that's condemned to death is being walked up to the gallows right and he sits outside beside the puddle yeah. yeah I thought that was Kafka I can't remember though could it could, could have been Kafka yeah. yeah and then Orwell noticed it, um, noted it in his right. in uh, South America or something wasn't he well, I guess the point being that it, it's something that was really odd yeah because what the hell, what the hell difference exactly. does it make if he gets his boots wet right but it's it's something idiosyncratic in the sense that maybe not everyone would have would have noticed that. Exactly. You know, that's that's the perfect example to illustrate what we're talking about because not only do you then get the the physical sense of this doomed man walking to the gallows and you see the puddle, you see the physicality of how he steps around the puddle, um, and you can obviously, based on you know the images that we've already seen of gallows and, and executioners and hooded men, we can we can picture that. But yet, what he's doing is he's driving a wedge through the physicality, through the corporeality, to very, very um, enormous world of metaphysics, philosophy, and abstract idea. And so we start dealing with notions of humanity or individuality or idiosyncrasy, like you're saying, in the face of what is known to be, you know, certain death. We're dealing with issues of mortality. We're dealing with, you know, issues of what it means. We're also struck with how funny it is. And it's it's absurd. It's funny. It's ludicrous. Yeah. All of those things, and, and and it's done by a simple sensory observation, and and, and yet we're we're suddenly shunted into this emotional and philosophical world. It's a short little, as you say, observation. It's a yeah. sort of point that that opens up into a great big Absolutely. crack that you can decide to fill or not fill, or yeah. have the capacity to fill or not fill. As exactly, a that's right. And 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 I think the best the best details are the ones that do precisely that. They invite as much or as, as little energy as the reader is willing to give and, 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 uh, and capable of giving, drawing on their own experience, their own memories, their own reading, their own intellect, and their own emotionality. It sort of invites the reader and says, here's this space, here's this image, it's prepared for you, now 
imbue it with significance. Yeah, and that's, and that's what you can do when you when you choose the right detail. It's a, it's interesting too that you know as a as a great writer you could say well I'm I'm doing you know you're doing some really clever things maybe only a small percentage of the readers would get it. Yeah. You, you, I suppose you want to be able to to appeal on a sliding scale. Yeah, and I think the, the I always veer between ideas of how esoteric you're allowed to be as a writer because I I really do believe in that sense of courtesy to the reader of never condescending to the reader and so write writing as, as smart as you possibly can write I think I think in order for your work to really be alive your work has to be smarter than you are not even realize how, what you're doing no I think you have to tap into um you have to tap into those places and those moments and those images that that are somehow charged without comprehensively knowing why it is that they're charged yeah. but knowing that they actually represent something that might be you know a bit beyond your ken because I think that's where the that's where the good stuff is is in that sense of, um, of of mystery, in that sense that there's more out there that you can sort of begin to apprehend, but you can't constrain or curtail the scope of that understanding. And and, and obviously that's where you give the reader the greatest scope to put their own uh, experiences into that moment as well. Let's uh, look at details. How specifically uh, how you see them the way that you see details. Right. Because it's, it's sort of, we talked about senses and details, I and mean, we may have covered that off. Right. Uh, any, any observations on what, you, what you've been doing in the, in the boat? That, uh um, all I would say is that the, the, the most fundamental operating principle for me is to, in a sense, sublate my own instinct as an author and as an experiencer of the world and try to get into the consciousness and subjectivity of my character as much as possible. Mm. So it's not the detail which will give me, the author, um, a sense of satisfaction. It's not the detail that might satisfy my ego because I've been smart enough to find it or that I've um, found something that will signify a lot to the reader but perhaps at the expense of the character at stake. And so I really need to relinquish that sense of, of ego mm. um, as much as I possibly can and then really try to insert myself into the subjectivity that I'm meant to be exploring Basically, getting into, getting into the head of another person as completely as you possibly can. As completely as you, as you can, which means, essentially, that you may not be able to, to stick in those observations and details which might be tremendously lyrical or perfectly <laughs> plumb or, you know, amazingly perspicacious because your character might not be in a state of mind to really notice that yeah, sort of stuff. or smart enough. Or, or smart enough, or whatever, yeah. you know. So it's... it's uh, then there's also the... And we talked about leaving a space for the reader. There's the the capacity to know when not to put something in. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I think one of, the pro- one of the problems that you can face as a writer is oftentimes, especially when you're writing outside yourself, you feel the need to establish your authority, you know, your standing, so to speak, to tell the story. And so you can actually quite easily err on the side of the perfect detail or the detail that, um, that establishes that you know what you're talking about. And that, in a sense, is sucking the oxygen away from the actual story that needs to be told, mm-hmm. as you say. Beginning, middle, and end? Do you always do that? Not really, not in no. that sense. What do you do? Well, first of all, I, I, just I wouldn't know what a beginning is and where it you know, bleeds into the middle, and I wouldn't be sure where the middle bleeds into the end. And also, I'm very interested with sort of temporal manipulation in my work in structural... So, what, flipping back to the past and Obvious, the future? Yeah, yeah, flipping back to the past, future, um, compression and expansion, sort of telescoping and microscoping, 
you know, it's, it, it goes without saying, obviously, that a story is a linear thing. We read from the first word, we read from left to right, we read from page to page, and then we get to the end. And so you can't get away from the inexorable linearity or teleological um, aspect of, of reading. Yeah, we so start, of course, we start. We start, we stop. Yeah. So of course there's a beginning, you know, it's the first chunk, and yeah. of course there's an ending, there's, there's the last bit. Depends on what, the cho- your choice of what you put first and what you put last. Exactly, exactly. And so I, um, I think every story is different. You know, I think some stories, some of the stories that I admire most are the ones that very, very sort of self-evidently start at the beginning of a character's life, say, and follow that character all the way through to their death. And I think there's an amazing ambition and humanity in those stories when they're pulled off. But I also love stories that might take place, you know, in someone's head in, in, in one crucial moment in their lives. Can you yeah. give some examples then? Um, well, a lot of the work of Chekhov, say, or Maupassant, or um, Babel, or Alice Monroe, William Trevor, they really, you know, move from a lot of the stuff when it works well from start to finish. Which is surprising, um, though, you should mention that in the short story because that's one of the one of the drawbacks right. of a short story is that you, you cannot develop really a character of... Uh, over time because you've only got you know 10 you've only, pages you've only got yeah and so the, the pages that you do have and the words that you do have are necessarily heightened and uh, there's there's a lot more scope for error mm-hmm. I think which which is why when it's pulled off properly mm-hmm. it becomes a bit of a um, by definition a bit of a tool to force do you want to stick with a short story or do you, do you feel uh, do you feel that this is a training ground for the, for the big thing I don't feel it, I don't think of it as a training ground I think the, the difficulties that might be inherent to the short story uh, as high a level of difficulty in prose writing as, as you get. But I, I am extraordinarily interested in, in the novel. I actually started fiction writing a novel, which I subsequently ditched, and so currently I'm writing a novel. But I, I would always love to you know continue writing short stories. Yeah, I mean, if you look in the in the canon or the pantheon that uh, Chekhov is, is, it's way up there. And, uh, Absolutely. Isn't Absolutely. It? Yeah. yeah. And, and just and because of you say, as you say, I mean, it's acknowledged the difficulty of what he's pulled off. Absolutely. Is, is acknowledged. And, and and if you look at contemporary writers, I really do think that some of the best writing in the world at the moment is being done by practitioners of the short story. Such as. Such as uh, so we mentioned uh, Monroe, and William Trevor. There's there's stuff by. Um, uh, Charles D'Ambrosio, Tobias Wolfe, uh, Jumpa Lahiri, Tim Winton, Deborah Eisenberg, Laurie Moore, obviously, you Mary Gateskill, you know, you, you name it. These are this, this is kind of jumping it forward a bit because I, I, I want to end with some of your criteria of how you would judge great work. Right. And maybe we'll leave that for the, for the end. Sure, sure. When you can separate theme from meaning, you can be sure that the story isn't a good one. I think, and I'm sort of deliberately you know, shoving her into a, a straw man here, but I think what she's talking about is when you approach a narrative with a certain thematic intentionality, the extreme version of that would be a didactic or a polemical approach or a programmatic approach to having a message that you want to get across. My own take on this is, 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 uh, is probably complicated, but a more subtle um, example of that would be you know, maybe dwelling too deeply on, on, on symbolism in stories or on configuring your scenes in such a way that, you know, a thematic, or even some selecting your scenes in such a way that a, a thematic significance comes through. So the meaning is the story itself. The meaning is and should be intrinsic to every single aspect of the story. The meaning should be intrinsic to the language, 
to the plot, to the character, to the structure, it should add to the rhythm of the sentences. The meaning should reside in all of those things. Yeah. And if you, um, what I'm taking taking care to say is, if you if you take um, that that life force, which is the meaning, and which, as we've said, is dependent on an energy interchange between the writer and the reader, and you try to channel it mm-hmm. um, or damn it in certain places, or turn it into propaganda, turn it to propaganda, then you're um, you're, you're sort of you're cutting off the uh, the um, what's the word? You're cutting off the it's supply. Honesty. I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think of these things sometimes as being you know it's it's, it's an energy yeah. field. You know, it's one of the metaphors that, that sometimes I use. Yeah. And you know what you're doing, um, hopefully, in a story is you're manipulating and guiding and sometimes curbing and sometimes amplifying that energy in such a way that it's maximally charged and that there's there's maximum scope for emotional impact and intellectual impact. And if you channel things in the wrong way, if you try to choke off this capillary or you try to, you know, guide everything into one category, be it the category of theme, for example, or the category of, as you were saying, you know, some some type of propagandistic intent, then you can actually you can actually uh, um, you can either lose the energy, you can you know let it let it seep away from the story, yeah. or you can sort of um, tamp it down in a certain way that makes it uh, much less forceful than it could have been. Or often you can create the opposite uh, you know uh, response in the reader that you had hoped initially to to create. Right, right. And yeah. I think that's 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 a big part of it is that. Um, you don't want your energy to be too diffuse, obviously, yeah. because then it's not going to come together. But you can't make it too um, concentrated, because then you're not giving the reader anything to work with. You're saying, "Here it is," and it's very unilateral. You just hit the reader mm-hmm. with with that energy, yeah. and they don't have any chance to actually, uh, you know, participate. Can you uh, point to one of your stories that you think best achieves this level of intensity? You know, it's, it's difficult in some ways for me to, to, to talk about my stories. And, and more is sort of brought to mind something Delillo said, which is that when you talk about your, your work, you belittle it in yeah. a certain way. But I can say that there was a very... that this type of thinking um, of shepherding energy was very manifest in the longer story in the collection, Half Led Bay. And it's a story where, I guess, we're sort of confusing, uh, I'm, I'm deliberately confusing energy with tension um, and narrative momentum, for example. But it's, you know, it's a 79-page story and I'm consciously trying to keep um, various strands of tension and various streams of suspense and narrative uh, momentum in a sort of choreographed form. Can you talk specifically, you know, in which brief terms, Sure. Yeah. What, what happens in the story? Sure. I mean, there's a the protagonist is a, a teenage boy in a small uh, Australian coastal town, and so basically it's a it's a coming of age story, and he deals with certain tensions. So one tension is a tension with his father, who has been questioning his courage in sort of insidious and, and very damaging ways. He's got a very fraught relationship with his younger brother as well, which is mostly uh, taciturn, but sometimes manifests itself in physical violence. He has a love interest with a girl who may or may not be leading him on, and who happens to may be, be connected to 
the town's hard man, the school bully, so to speak. And so there's the tension of him knowing that he has to, at some point, face up to a physical confrontation, essentially, with this bully. So that's the main source of linear dread pulling the story through. His mother is a victim of MS, and so her condition is worsening through through this story. The family might have to move to a neighbouring town for, in order for her to be closer to medical facilities. And the town itself is declining. You know, it's losing its port traffic. The bay is overfished. And so there's a tension of, of him, you know, having to, in some ways, keep himself at arm's length with the town itself because he might have to, you know, get out of there. And so there are all these different... And, and, and of course... getting anxious just listening to all this. <laughs> yeah, yeah there's, you know, there's tensions between the characters themselves. Um, through the school, there's racial tension in the town. And it's, it, it was very much a matter of, um, you know, like, for example, I could have amplified the tension between the two brothers because it was very central to the plot and it's also, I think, you know, something which is, is quite charged. But I didn't want to do it at the expense of other narrative tensions in the story. And so there was very much a sense of, you know, how do I keep this tension at this level mm-hmm. while upping this one, modulating it so I have a bit of a down period here so that I can actually explore another point of emotional tension. And, and suspense. Too. And suspense, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. And so there was just a sense of, of orchestration in that story which, uh, which is, is, is probably more uh, manifest than in some of the other stories. I'm speaking with Nam Lee, who is the author of The Boat, and The Boat has won some awards. The stories have, have won awards and been anthologised in various places, and the boat itself at this point has been uh, long-listed for the Frank O'Connor Prize and shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Award or Prize. So it's going to win some awards then? I, uh, I, I certainly would not uh, throw my hat in that ring. <laughs> it's a bit of a chook lottery, as I say. You tell a story because the statement is inadequate... I think that goes a little bit to what we, we were just yeah, talking it about. Does. I've heard this of a poem, but right. I, have, I haven't really actually heard it, it uh, of a short story, but it, it tends to make right. sense that you, as you, you know, pare it down to... Right. One of the things that um, kept me going when I was starting out, and I actually started out writing and reading poetry, was something that T.S. Eliot said, that a poem can, I can't remember whether he said can or should, but a poem can communicate or should communicate before it means, and I think that that ties in nicely with what uh, what she's saying. saying. Fiction is experienced meaning, not abstract. I would take that to mean that abstract meaning seems to me more unilateral. It seems to me something which the author is... um, Well, as we talked about, putting a theme together. Exactly, they're concocting, they're letting it percolate, gestate and then they're trying to create something which they think is, is, is somewhat sort of set in stone, you know, and then propagating that to, to their readers. Well, on the other hand, though, I mean, again, going back to what we had said, it's, you know, if the, if the author is good enough, they can, they can set a trap or they can, right. they can hook. Uh, there was a thing in the... I don't know where it is. To a Canadian short story writer and a novelist, uh, Lisa, Lisa Moore, likened the short story to a, a hook in a stocking. Run right, the stalking, right, right. but creating uh, creating space for. I, mean, I, I don't think that that you're equating what the author says as sort of set in stone. And yet, there seems to me there could be a room for an abstract thought that comes from the. Oh, readers. absolutely. I mean, it's it's a, it's a tough dynamic because it's um, seduction at the same time as it's instruction in a sense. 
and has to be done in a way that the, the reader feels as, as though they're uh, they're continually engaged and invited. You know, so that's yeah. why I mean that's what I take experienced meaning to mean is that it's meaning that the reader can apprehend on a personally experiential level. It spurs that. It spurs. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be relatable on a one-to-one level. Of course, no, no human life is is absolutely relatable to any other ones. To any other one, but uh, but it needs to be something, as you say, you know, that uh, that gets its hooks in to a place that can be can be seen as being common between between human beings, and then you know, seeing what comes of it when yeah. you when you when you tug at it. Yeah, and I and imagine again one of the most rewarding experiences for an author would be to have a really good, intelligent reader. Yeah. Add to I mean, that you've you've got your thoughts about that abstract idea, but someone else might have a whole range of other ones that, that are stimulating and interesting. That's exactly it. Yeah, I mean I've heard readers uh, writers talk about what it feels like when an actor acts out or reads their their words, and if it's done well, there there, there are just so many new colours and cadences and dimensions which are brought to the words, and I think there's an analogy between that and what happens when a really good reader reads your words as well. Mm-hmm. They can bring dimension and, and volume and body to something, you know, which you knew was there, but you, you, you yourself couldn't have anticipated how it might play out. What I think she talks about is that a good short story reveals the mystery of existence by showing the concrete. Details accumulate meaning for actions and hence become symbolic. Was uh, Flannery O'Connor? Or yeah, yeah, we're still going with Flannery. We're sure. going to stick with her for the whole. Sure, sure, sure. You know, I think um, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think what we were talking about before about. I think yeah. In fact, I think we've we've covered a lot of uh, yeah. what's what's right because I mean it's, it's necessarily compressed, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And and so there's no that the, the con of my mesis, the con of verisimilitude, can't really apply in the spaces in the space of 10, 15, 20 pages because there's obviously an aesthetic and obviously an ambition to suck more of the universe into the space of those pages than just the world that's being represented in those pages. And when when that much um, pressure is put on every decision that's made in the short story, which is one of the reasons why it's very hard to write a good short story... Mm-hmm. Then, then, then everything, as Flannery O'Connor says, can actually be transfigured into into symbolism. I think that that's very. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think that's always the case. I don't think it necessarily should always be the case. But I think that they can be the case when so much pressure is brought to bear on every every, every word and every decision. Well, in fact, the next thing that that she says is, uh, or the next point to make is that she makes is to state as little as possible. Connections from things shown give depth and increase the story in every direction, and this is how it escapes being short. Right. The short story isn't it isn't necessarily short. If you can if you can create some intense curiosity or or reaction Absolutely. that reverberates yeah. for years. Yep. It's no short story. It's a yeah, it's a it's a key to something larger. I it, think I is think this what you aim for with the short story? I mean, absolutely. I yeah. mean, I think um, novelists would a lot of novelists would say that and 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 believe and and rightfully so 
that they want their novels to do exactly the same thing, to tap into something that's larger and and more 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 felt, more mysterious yeah. than just the thing that uh, that their the artifact of their book represents. But it has to be said that novels also inherently have the countervailing impulse, which is to contain everything within their pages. Mm. I think short stories can't do that. I mean, they, they just don't have the scope or the, uh, the time to do that. And so you're necessarily dealing with spring-loading as much as you can in a short story so that it's absolutely geared for expansion. And, and that's what I think she means when, when she says, you know, a short story shouldn't be short. Just in, uh, in concluding, what are these larger abstract ideas or responses to some of them that you'd like your readers to, to take with them and live with for, for time after having read your stories? Right. There, are there any you know, sort of dominant abstract ideas that you would ideally want your readers to, to work with? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's true for all writers that what you're trying to affect is a sense of recognition. And sometimes, in order to affect that sense, you need to completely defamiliarise the reader with all the things that they're comfortable with, all the things they've assumed and carry into the room of a story, all the expectations and experiences they've had. See, let them see something anew. And what that recognition consists of, ideally, would be paradoxical. It would be the recognition that, hey... That they're wrong? No, it would be, I think, the recognition that, hey, there's so much out there that I don't quite understand. There's so much about other people that I could never begin to really understand. Even though I may have thought that I did. Even though I may have thought that I did, even though I was comfortable in my my mode of of seeing the world and my phenomenological stance with the world. Um, And... And, and, and related to that, a sense of, as you say, curiosity, a sense of wonder, you know. And then, contradictorily, the sense that, hey, I'm not that alone after all. I, mm-hmm. I know that person. I sense um, that, that that situation is not too dissimilar to mine and that there, there may be more that's common and universal about my experience and those of these, these strange people um, inhabiting this book taking place all over the real and imaginary world. Um, and Gee, that, you haven't answered my question, though. And that's, you know, well, that's sort of morally redemptive if, if it's done properly. So, I mean, I, I, I would like, I'd like readers to, I mean, when it comes down to it, I would like readers to be moved. Specifically about what? About, uh... Like, specific to this book. Oh, to this book? Yep. I, I would like to, them to be, to be moved um, in... Hopefully, the emotional trajectories that the, uh, the book gestures towards, so moments of, of, of grief, of loss, of redemption, of joy, of connectedness, of alienation and estrangement, you know, the various, the various um, sort of emotional nodes that the stories hopefully uh, contain. That's still pretty abstract. It is pretty abstract, but uh, it's also, I think it's incredibly... No, but in terms of this specific book, I guess what we'd have... I, we don't have the time for you to say, well... This story and that story. This story and that story, but but is there something that's, that, that you think most people don't see in, in a way that they should see very specifically? I don't think so. No, because I, I haven't really come across... 
because the, that shouldn't be a coherent ever. response to the book. You know, wouldn't that be a motivation though of yours? Is it, okay, people are seeing nine eleven or a particular issue in a way that I think is inaccurate. Right. And I I want to change that, and I'm going to use all my tools to do that. Right. Right. There's there's nothing that comes to. No, I think my my only wish is that the emotional responses that readers have or might have to the stories be as as deep and as deeply felt as possible. And I I, I, I sort of am in a place in, with respect to the stories now where I, I wouldn't want to engineer that emotional response uh, any more than that. Well, thanks very much for your time. Not at all. Thank but you for having me. Best of luck with uh, these, these competitions that are coming up. Oh, future writing. We'll see. Cheers, mate. All right. Thank you.